updated Chrome. Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America, from right here in Manhattan, Kansas, live in the studio, and from around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 264 for July the 6th. 2022. I am Wes Fryer, coming to you from my parents' house in Manhattan, Kansas, where I've come up for a couple days. And I am a new uh, computer teacher and media literacy teacher. I should say robotics teacher, but computer science and media literacy teacher at Providence Day School in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we did not find a house to buy last week, but we did find some an apartment to be in, and our, our housing quest continues. But joining me, as always, is Dr. Jason Neifer, who is apparently circulating around the major metropolitan areas of the state of Montana. And tonight, Dr. Neifer, where have you graced the local residents with your presence? Well, um, I am joining tonight from lovely uh, Haver, Montana, in north-central Montana, along uh, U.S. Highway 2 in the north, the high line of Montana, if you will. Um, Amtrak uh, goes through here, and the infamous Empire Builder train uh, stops here in beautiful Haver, Montana. But um, I'm on some site visits. I'll be spending some time tomorrow on the Rocky Boy Reservation in north-central Montana uh, for some exciting ongoing projects at Montana Digital Academy. And I'm excited that even though I don't have my delightful home internet connection, um, which is super fast. Uh, I think I'm on a, a wireless connection tonight uh, uh, via Verizon. It looks like we're in pretty good shape. So it's a shame, Dr. Fryer, because I actually, up until just a couple of hours ago, I was at my parents' house in Great Falls, Montana, and in fact joined a lot of conference calls in the last couple of days, literally for my parents' basement. Uh, so it's a shame that I could not join you tonight uh, so we could uh, both uh, uh, be joining you from um, our parents' homes. That's right. That's cool. Well, there's a sign sign of uh, of summertime. Well, Dr. Niver, for the benefit of the many new viewers, well, hello to Peggy George, by the way, in Phoenix. We're sorry we were just a few minutes late getting started. But uh, for those folks who might be new to the show, um, in addition to some early banter about Montana or central uh, Oklahoma or Kansas uh, news and politics or weather, what else can folks look forward to tonight? Well, um, the Ethics Situation Room is a podcast, uh, which I'm sure you figured out, that goes through the headlines from the techosphere and kind of shoots them through an educational prism and hopes to maybe bring some insight or, or thoughts or, or new ideas to teachers, administrators, tech directors, and all those that help serve our students in schools. Um, it's been a relatively slow news week, although uh, Dr. Fryer and I did come up with a, a series of links that I think will delight you. Uh, if you're interested in seeing the links, especially the ones we don't get to as we uh, oftentimes run out of time each week, feel free to go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links. You can access the Google document, uh, the second volume of our Google document, where we share all the links going back to episode one of our podcast uh, a number of years back. Uh, this week, we have several topics to talk about, including some connectivity news, uh, Google and Apple news, some podcasting information, uh, security our tech correction topic, which we others sometimes call rabbit hole, um, uh, video conferencing information, some cryptocurrency news, and a miscellaneous topic. And at the end of our podcast tonight, we'll be sure to share our geeks of the week. Dr. Fryer, um, where would you like to start tonight? Oh, actually, I just put an article in I'll, that, that I'll start with. Um, this is about technology spending in light of um, 
the mass shootings that we have seen in the United States and that unfortunately uh, seem to be continuing to, to just be part of our, uh, our, our, our life. Um, so this is under the miscellaneous category, but the New York Times reported today, well, actually, no, I, I went ahead and threw that in as a today, but this was a article that I found. This was from June 26. So this is a June 26, 2022 article uh, by Natasha Singer, and it's headlined, Schools are spending billions on high-tech defense for mass shootings. Now, this might not be a topic that you would necessarily think we're going to cover. Uh, that's why I put it under the miscellaneous category. Um, but oftentimes, and I am a recovering technology director, um, you know, as a as as folks involved in school technology, we're involved in surveillance and we're involved in really anything that touches the network. You know, over the the course of my time at, at uh, Cassidy School, you know, I inherited, but also saw the 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 network continue to grow. Uh, well over a hundred security cameras. Um, we were a campus of 80 acres and 23 buildings. Um, but there's a whole lot of moving parts to that and then how that can fit into an overall security strategy for the school, et cetera. So what the New York Times was reporting back in June uh, was that um, the market for weapon detectors and crisis alert badges in schools is booming. There's questions about whether the new technology is effective. In fact, um, and I haven't done the research on this, uh, but the article says there's really scant evidence that any of this kind of technology um, actually has done anything to, um, you know, actually prevent school shootings. Now, I'll say that we um, had a system uh, in place and, and we followed the lead of Oklahoma City Public Schools. And thanks to my friend Eric Heilman, um, uh, we, we, I became aware of, of how effective this can be. <clears throat> which uh, was a system that actually scanned all the Gmail and Google Docs uh, for, you know, messages about self-harm or about violence and weapons and things like that. I I hope that that is kind of a common thing uh, for schools to do um, because that is an important thing to monitor. But uh, two different school systems, very large, that are featured in this article. Um, one is Cobb County School District that is uh, north of Atlanta. It's been a five, $5 million dollars on a quote crisis management system. Um, but what they detail is that back in, uh, when was it? Um, well, it doesn't say the exact date, but basically they, um, it, it sent out a false alert and it turned out to be a cyber attack. So someone actually hacked the school system, uh, got it to go off, have a red alert. And then everybody in the school system thought they had a school shooting, you know, incident happen, which caused a lot of trauma, um, you know, and, and obviously called, caused some folks to be upset. Um, that is a system called Alert Point um, that sent false alarms all over the place. I'll say that that reminds me, as a school technology director, we um, have, have we've went through different iterations of, of kind of the emergency broadcast, you know, being able to push some buttons on a phone and then broadcast. Um, eventually, and, and I helped implement this new system with IP speakers and, and whatever, so that, you know, horns that were going to be on athletic fields and everything um, to be able to send a recorded message, you know, saying that these things, uh, we, you know, this wasn't a drill. This was real. You know, I, I was up at school uh, after midnight some nights, not testing that one that was going to wake the, the whole neighbors, but Anyway, uh, these we also had to be careful because when we had an older phone system, 
you know, there had been a student as a prank that had gotten on this and they were able to, you know, broadcast to everybody's phone at some point. That was before things were happening with speakers. Anyway, in addition to that, the article also mentions um, a school district really uh, of interest to me because it's where I'm moving, Charlotte, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's one of the largest U.S. school districts with over 140,000 students. Um, they have an alert system from an Atlanta-based company called Centigix. And they spent over a million, 1.1 million on that system, uh, with a badge service that was to allow teachers to quickly, you know, send an <coughs> alert if there was some kind of a, of a system going on. Um, at our school, we have used a system that was integrated with, with a tool called Informacast and the app, and you can decide who has the ability to do this, you know, will let you from your phone actually send a, a direct alert. Say we have, you know, an active shooter situation or, or something else. So anyway, the overall article, and I don't know how many listeners end up intersecting with uh, surveillance systems and other kinds of security systems. There's a heck of a lot of money, you know, that schools are spending on these kinds of things. And obviously, uh, public relations and the need to be uh, perceived as doing things constructively to help um, talks about also, you know, uh, scanners, uh, metal detectors, you know, things like that. Uh, but these wouldn't necessarily be things you would think would fall into the realm of educational technology, but it's schools and it's technology. And I certainly know from my experience that, yeah, that was just part of the big umbrella that in addition to all these other things that I was responsible for, you know, it was all the security systems and the ways they, they interfaced. And all, by the way, also, you know, getting them to be safe and secure. And that was something that we did end up doing was set up multiple uh, virtual LANs so that everything wasn't on a single network and then trying to have some level of, uh, of insulation for the security systems and some of those other kinds of systems that, you know, frankly, students that were just getting online, you know, in their classroom or on the wireless, I mean, they, they certainly didn't need to be uh, having, you know, potential IP access to the same the same kinds of networks. So not a typical article to start out with today, but we've been certainly hearing, unfortunately, a lot about this, even through the July 4th weekend. Uh, and so this is impacting schools. So do you think any Montana schools, Jason, are spending any money uh, on any security systems or any heightened security systems these days? Um, almost certainly they are. And in fact, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of signs or uh, you borrow a Dr. Fryer term, a sign of time uh, in regards to uh, a lot of things that were discussed in the um, uh, days after uh, the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, uh, single points of entry, uh, uh, security doors, uh, security cameras. Um, uh, forcing people uh, to check in with an office, a member of the office staff before they're even allowed in the physical plan, all part of that process. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the larger topic is an incredible rabbit hole. But what I would say is that, um, you know, if you are a, a tech director in, in, in put into the position to work on these technologies, just remember that um, you want to make sure that it's a community conversation, a community discussion, because every uh, element of additional surveillance technology you add to a school um, does sacrifice some civil liberties in, in some way, shape or form. And I'm not commenting on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, other than to say it's really important those are community conversations and that everyone with a stake in the conversation is involved in that. 
And most certainly, if you are a tech director, uh, that you should be doing this at uh, the command of, of an administrative staff. You'll make sure that that uh, uh, all these things are done uh, with the utmost of safety and security, not only of physical persons, but of, of rights and responsibilities in mind. Absolutely. Um, I dropped a link into the chat. Uh, Peggy uh, had a good comment. You know, this sounds like a little invasive to scan all student communication. One of the really important conversations that I always had as tech director uh, in September at the start of the year uh, was having students sign what used to be called our acceptable use agreement. We migrated to a responsible use agreement uh, with more affirmatives than just like a list of 20 I will nots. Um, but, but putting students on notice to let them know about that. One of the interesting things that's happened with surveillance is it's become much more pervasive. And at one point, you know, when there were fewer cameras, there were little signs, you know, warning this area under video surveillance, you know, as it was now, I mean, every single one of our buildings and, and many hallways, just lots and lots of places under surveillance. And there really weren't any signs letting people know about that. Uh, it was, <laughs> It was a bit sad because being the person who bore that news to the students uh, actually created a, some, if not fear, intimidation, uh, and definitely a big a perception of Big Brother. And I don't know. My personal view on that is I, I think that all of us, and this is whether you're part of a school organization uh, or any kind of organization or not, all of us need to be aware. Uh, that, and we'll probably talk about this with some other security articles talking about hacks. You know, anything that is put into an electronic system can potentially be accessed by someone else who may or may not be authorized to access it. It can be hacked, um, but it, it certainly can be surveilled during the pandemic. And I think we've talked about some of these articles, you know, during the pandemic and in the past. Um, the, um, the tools available to both Microsoft 365 domain users, to Google domain administrators, uh, to be aware of the things that users were doing or not doing. You know, who hasn't logged into this tool? Um, when was the last time this person used this? Um, how many, you know, things are shared outside of our uh, of, of our network or, or our domain? I don't know. There's a whole host of different tools. And now with Google, we've talked about this. You know, you pay for some of those advanced um, admin console tools to to be able to do some monitoring, things like that. But um, we have had very good success with Gaggle. Um, it has been very helpful. Uh, it definitely um, allows for conversations to happen, especially around student wellness and uh, potential uh, self-harm and, and things like that. Um, but it's it's something that requires a lot of administrative involvement. Uh, I could talk about that for, for a long time because I, I learned a great deal uh, implementing that for the first time at our school. And uh, like I said, being the person who was the face of, of uh, IT and, uh, and letting students know about what that meant and, you know, trying to help them uh, I can I won't share some funny stories, but there's there are some funny stories that we have even about graduates and email accounts that didn't get activated and things that, that kids did and things that we became aware of. And, you know, it's our, it's also part of the reason why you only want to be, you know, having uh, accounts active for current employees, for current students. You know, you want those policies and protocols set in place and then followed uh, in terms of the deactivation of, of accounts and things like that. Um uh, because there are some obligations and, and legalities that are certainly involved in, uh, in in that kind of monitoring. Something else that I'd say is that the Google Admin Console, uh, one of the things you definitely don't want to do is just grant too many rights to folks when it comes to administrative systems. Um, when I came to our school in uh, 2015, 
there were a number of um, of people that had been granted uh, more administrative rights than they needed to be granted, you know, on the system. Uh, and that can be something where people lock things down too much. But basically, if people need to reset passwords, that's what they should be able to do. You don't want to give them, you know, more uh, extensive uh, access roles. And I, I think it's also really important that you always document your use of things. Um, we had um, a tool trying to think of the name of it, but it basically, you know, we, we retained email for, for five years for, for everybody. Um, and the, the tool would, would allow you to go in and do all kinds of queries. Well, I only, you know, did that when I was being asked by an administrator to do that and documented that there was only one case of a lawsuit where a judge had actually asked for really specific things. Um, but I used that story without naming names to tell people, even though I knew about the fact that this was retained, when I had to respond to a court order and say every single email that was ever sent by this person that mentioned this or this, you know, and, and there are ways of packaging that up and then being able to send that to a judge and, and uh, send that to lawyers, actually, who then provide that to the judge. It's pretty eye opening. So, yes, it does sound invasive, but. The fact is, all of the content and the things that we share online uh, can be accessed by different people, and we need to be, therefore, aware of that when we choose to, to share things. Um, and that that could, you know, possibly uh, influence our behavior. And uh, those are things that need to be well communicated by the organizations that are doing them. And I think this overall article from the New York Times is just kind of a warning, as we might share in other contexts, too, to not just, you know, move quickly to the latest flashy and, uh, you know, exciting thing because technology is going to save us. Technology can certainly provide important windows into behavior and it can, <coughs> can help with conversations. But ultimately, um, you know, it's not going to be a, quote, silver bullet, which is a poor metaphor to use in this case. It's not going to solve all the problems. And in some cases, it could actually be a pretty big waste of resources that are very, you know, limited and, and needed in schools. So uh, those are both cautionary tales, I think, about how uh, large sums of money are spent in the name of security and keeping kids safe. Totally. And I would just add one other thought about this. Uh, chances are that there are organizations in your state, whether it's a school board association that has attorneys, administrative uh, advocacy groups that have attorneys, you should be implementing none of this without uh, appropriate legal device or legal device, legal advice. Uh, so that you are doing it appropriately, not not just for state uh, laws and local ordinances, but for federal law as well. So yes, and in, in addition to ISTE, COSIN, the Consortium of School Networking, uh, is excellent for IT directors. And uh, at the time I stepped down three years ago as our tech director, uh, they were really trying to ramp up uh, a local state affiliate that they were doing, uh, but just really really great national as well as state and regional issues. Uh, I'm sure NCCE does a great deal of work with tech directors as far as networking and things like that. And where, where sometimes we talk, I mean, we talk about a lot of geeky, you know, Google, Apple and Microsoft stuff. <clears throat> but in terms of, you know, the networking, the security systems, all of that, uh, hey, the good old listserv is still alive and well. And there's just a lot of really, really good resources uh, to be able to turn to for these kinds of things because there's a lot of moving parts to them. 
And, uh, you know, depends on your context. If you're a little bit smaller, you know, you can end up being saddled with, with a heck of a lot and maybe things that you haven't ever received, you know, formal training in, but they're things that you just have to figure out. So those kinds of organizations and relationships are priceless, uh, in terms of trying to figure out what it is that's worth spending money on and what to avoid, uh, and what's good. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, so let's see here. We can Just either here. Let's get back to a more normal topic. Yeah. <laughs> here, here. Let's do some nerdy stuff. Uh, let's do some Google news. Um, first and foremost, uh, we've been talking about this a couple of times in the last year or so, but nine to five Google reported on July 4th that hangouts on Android and iOS uh, stops working, um, as Google makes the transition to, um, the, the chat, uh, uh app and also, um, the, uh, hangouts protocols inside of, of the Gmail app and, uh, chat is now going to relocate there. Um, the two apps that you can move to are either Gmail, which has a component of Meets and video conferencing uh, uh, directly built into the app, or you can download the specific chat app if you want to. If you are in a Google domain, you've been emailed and warned about this uh, really uh, like a, a dozen times over the last 18 months or so. So that transition is is finally complete. No word on whether or not uh, uh, Google will be sticking with the strategy. Part of the problem Google has had uh, uh, for a long time is that their chat strategy and their messaging strategy it seems to be constantly evolving and never seems to resolve itself into something that looks like it's going to have any permanence. But if you're an IT person or deep into Google, that's something to keep in mind. Um, a couple and other... I, I, would, I, would, I would add to that. Um, huh. Hopefully, at your school, you have a graduated system of granting rights on the network. Uh, I know early on in, in the, the life of networks and filtering and things like that, it was really just a one size fits all. So the kindergartners might be filtered just like the 12th graders and even just like the teachers. And I've been an advocate for differentiated filtering where you provide teachers and staff a different set of filters than you do for students. Well, you know, at our school, uh, that changed if you were in elementary versus in middle school versus in high school. We created Google accounts when kids, you know, entered the school, uh, wherever that was, whether they were coming in at pre-K. Uh, actually, they may have started to create them. Well, because of the pandemic, everybody kind of needed to have accounts. So I, 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 they, I think that's when they started. But the email was not turned on until fifth grade, which for us was middle school. Well, this specific thing with Google and their tools you know, a decision was made at one point to turn off the, the Hangouts um, and because there was a lot of text messaging uh, and things like that that was happening during class and during school. Well, I think there's some real benefits to Google's integration with Gmail. But at the same time, these may be new things that you'll need to talk with your students about. And I'm not sure the granular ability that Google is going to provide on a subdomain level to say, hey, yes, we want our fifth graders, for instance, to have email, but no, we don't want them to be able to chat. And the tighter these things are integrated, sometimes it, it can become impossible to separate that out. So I would just put a little flag on that to say that'll be something to check into. If you've happened to look into that already, uh, reach out to Jason or I and let us know. Uh, send us an article or a link or just you know tell us what your experience has been because I'm sure that is something that some schools are going to wrestle with. And I think as we talked about on the show a few weeks ago, glad to see Google continuing to try to move that forward with messaging. It really is an important application and it's something that, 
it affects a whole lot. But from an educational standpoint, student engagement, distraction, you know, these are questions and issues that, that IT departments and hopefully ac the academic side of the house and, and teachers get to have conversations about and decide what to do. That could be something that, that is needed to be discussed because it certainly could be a new capability that your kids didn't have last year that maybe they have this year because now this is integrated, you know, inside Gmail. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Uh, next, uh, this is an article that, that, that announces the availability in new systems, but I hadn't realized until very recently that this was now available. Uh, but 9to5Google reported on June 30th that they're adding the e-signature system that is now inherently built into Google Docs uh, to Workspace Individual, which is actually what I use for my small business projects on the side of my day job and the other little projects I have like this podcast. But I only recently figured out that this is available and it's really quite a slick system. Uh, there's a pretty good chance if you're in a school district that in the last uh, two to three years, you've adopted some kind of electronic signature system, uh, Adobe Sign, um, a DocuSign, which became very popular during um, the pandemic. Uh, as an example of this, uh, my wife and I uh, took out uh, a new mortgage uh, in the the uh, now gone days of low interest rates uh, in order to get kind of a screaming good interest rate on a, a shorter mortgage on our home. Um, and we use DocuSign for most of the initial documents for that part of that process. And if you haven't done it, it's really a slick system. Uh, the Adobe Sign, DocuSign, and the other alternatives that's also built directly into uh, Google Workspace now. So after you get a document that's ready to be signed, you can actually request a signature, and that's a feature that's built directly into Google Docs now. Um, and I have to say that, um, and I've commented this on, on four or five times, 95%, 96% of all the word processing I do is in Google Docs now because it's just such a great system. And uh, as a reminder, uh, you know, that I'm not a Johnny come lately to this. Uh, I wrote my dissertation in Google Docs, actually against the advice of some people that said <laughs> that it was not a robust enough platform to be able to write an academic paper like that. Not only did I pull it off, I felt like the Google Docs really added a lot to the workflow process for me as I worked with my committee to complete the dissertation process. But if you haven't looked into that uh, yet uh, as a process, especially if you have kind of low value paperwork, so many signatures in in in, in K-12 schools uh, that could be very eloquently created in an e-signature system. I, I'm just thinking about things like um, permission slips for field trips and that sort of thing, where you might be able to save an extraordinary amount of time and heartache by moving towards just some kind of electronic signature system. So check that out in your um, individual uh, uh, Google workspace system for your school. Absolutely. We're right now, you know, our daughter youngest has graduated. And so she's going to a, a new, it's actually a prep school for a year in Virginia. And, you know, there's a ton of forms and a ton of things. And, and, and they've employed uh, some different systems to be able to do that. We're also in the process. We're selling our house. We're looking for a house. We're leasing. You know, we're doing all these different things at a distance. And uh, these electronic systems uh, are fantastic. Hopefully Google is going to have a, a, a similar you know, pretty seamless experience. But I think this is a great thing uh, to be integrated in. And it will, I mean, sign of the times, right? You know, did, you know, digital signatures. These are things that increasingly we expect, you know, I mean, leasing a, a new uh, townhouse, you know, across the country. I, I don't, 
I don't expect that I need to print out a piece of paper, you know, and, and fax it. You know, I expect that I can electronically take care of that. And I, I have. So it's great that these tools are being provided within the Google Workspace environment. And I'll be excited to hear what people's experiences are as, as they uh, roll out and, and are being utilized. Absolutely. And then one last one that I, I thought I would mention is that um, uh, uh, Chrome OS 105, which is the next version that's currently in beta on Chromebooks, um, uh, uh, is uh, in the, it's in the so-called dev channel right now, which means that it, you can put your Chromebook in a dev channel and get future f- uh, features earlier, although in an unstable way. But there is a new... Uh, a feature that's being tested out. This is according to um, uh, Kevin Tofel. Can we call him our friend Kevin Tofel? Um, uh, sure. Maybe we're fanboys of Kevin Tofel. Uh, Kevin Tofel. We've tried me before, so yeah, we're buds. There you go. So yeah, a fan of the podcast, obviously. But uh, Mr. Tofel reports uh, at About Chromebooks um, on July 5th that there is a um, a feature that uh, uh, could allow you to tweak things in order to uh, save on battery life. And the feature is called Quick Intensive Timer Throttling of Loaded Background Pages. Um, and essentially what it does is that it stops some of the background uh, information that happens uh, on your Chromebook uh, to fetch pages and also fetch scripts and things that, that can help load your page. And the idea here um, uh, uh, is that it could increase your uh, battery life by uh, not 10% is the number being tossed around. It's probably not going to be 10%, but it's another tweak that Chrome is working on to extend the, the battery of your Chrome devices. And already your Chrome OS device is likely to uh, be much more battery efficient than other operating systems available because of its kind of svelte posture and its minimalistic design philosophy. But I just love that all these uh, individual tweaks uh, continue to happen in in Chrome OS. And I have to say, um, you know, I may be more or less a Mac guy again, but I still love using a Chromebook. And in fact, uh, when I have a choice between um, uh, different platforms, I still love choosing Chrome OS as a power users uh, uh, platform in part because of tweaks like this. Did we talk last week about TikTok and about the the, the security stuff? Did we? I can't remember, except that I did put an article in um, about uh, the it, when I, I can't remember where it's from yeah, now. So, it's yeah, yeah, security. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe let me let me do this uh, senators one because I I think I don't know I, I don't know if I don't remember if we talked about this or not, but we'll talk about this and then you can hit that other TikTok article. So this is PC Magazine today on July sixth. Oh, okay. Uh, senators urge FTC to investigate TikTok over Chinese access to user data. That's weird. I think this was an older article. They must have updated it, why it says July 6th. Um, or maybe not. I'm losing my mind. There's only a few things that are going on in my life right now. Um, well, maybe this is that we had talked about the leaked audio recordings. I think that was it. This was a something that was uh, originally posted by The Guardian. So, yeah, I think we got another article about this. And so this was one that uh, Senators uh, Marco Rubio from Florida and Mark Warner from Virginia uh, came out as, in a statement and uh, said, quote, these revelations talking about the leaked like 80 audio recordings uh, that show that employees in China have access to TikTok user data. He said, these, these revelations undermine longstanding claims by TikTok's management that the company's operations were firewalled from the demands of the Communist Party. Um, 
And the interesting thing about this is, um, while it does seem to undoubtedly be, it, it definitely seems to be true based on the release of, of, of the materials, that user data has been sent to China, uh, we really don't have any privacy protection laws in the United States for this now. We don't have a, a GDPR like Europe has or really anything else that protects our privacy. Um, so, you know, senators and representatives and other people can flap around and, you know, have articles written about them and they can try to pass some resolutions. But in terms of really rubber meets the road, you know, kinds of legislation, I think we did talk about it last week, but it was in reference to another article because that one we talked about last week was, you know, some, some people within the administration, uh, the executive branch of the United States were saying that there is some forthcoming legislation that involves where the data lives. In fact, one of, one of the things was like called the Texas bill or something or the Texas project, because some of this is about, you know, where where does the data live? Is, is it in the United States? But I think the larger issue here is privacy. And let, let's just think about that. Where in our school curriculum, where in our courses, are we really focusing in on privacy and what it means to not have a protected right to privacy with data, and where does that all go? Um, we had a combined American literature and, and U.S. history class uh, in our, our high school this last year for the first time. One of the topics they they, taught, they took on, and I think they, they dropped it for this next year, but it was big tech. And I thought that was wonderful, a great opportunity to have a deep dive into uh, all of these kinds of issues. But anyway, TikTok in the news and... Um, there's issues here, but, you know, are we going to see anything substantively change? Um, I no, don't see don't don't see any signs of that. So you want to do your TikTok App Store article? Yeah. So um, related to that, you know, there there are a lot of accusations flying around about TikTok right now. And um, uh, there has been the SEC commissioner that recommended to both Google Play Store and uh, Apple that they pull it from their marketplace because they felt that there was enough concerns to do that. And we, we've talked about these kind of broad concerns before. Um, and and I'm, I'm trying to, my memory's trying to figure out how in depth we went into this last week. But the bottom line is there is, there is a lot of, of concerns here. Part of, of my uh, thought here that is, is always a, a part of what I can't wrap my brain around is that they're never all that specific, right? Like exactly what is the threat, right? Like obviously concerns of access of people accessing that in China, but I would imagine that there are a lot of apps actually that uh, uh, people in China because of the global economy have access to data that would be considered private or sensitive. But um uh, uh, the article that I'm pointing to is uh, a kind of a response to that. It's from 9to5Mac um, on, on July 1st, and TikTok has commented that they will do basically whatever it takes to make sure that the app itself stays in those two primary uh, distribution channels, the Google Play Store and uh, the Apple App Store for, for iOS and, and, and um, iPad OS. And, um, you know, I, I, I can understand what kind of sensitive data uh, could be stored. I can understand how people's uh, habits, what they click on, what they follow, what they comment on, if they, especially if they're trying to remain anonymous, could be very concerning. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, we on this podcast have talked about TikTok a lot from the standpoint of its discovery engine that seems incredibly accurate. And, um, you know, there are lots of what are seemingly innocent parts of TikTok that, uh, you know, you may be saying to yourself, who cares if people learn, you know, 
know which dance videos I click a, a like to, or if you're a super fan of, of Dr. Fryer's barbecue TikTok uh, page, that, you know, that that's not that sensitive of information. But um, I don't think the imagination needs to run that wild to think about ways that your private viewing habits could be considered uh, uh, at least embarrassing to you, if not highly concerning. I have been shocked in the past couple of weeks how hard different bad actors have tried to get my phone number through Facebook Marketplace. One of the things that does happen to me on TikTok, they want access to my contacts. And I say no, you know, and oh, will that make it easier? Now, whatever, disclose. I'm using Signal um, because that's something where next week is the, the, the Summer Institute in Digital Literacy. And, you know, that's the platform that we use for a group chat among the 26 or so of us that are organizers and, and help this thing, you know, help, help this rocket launch and, and the whole conference happen. You know, I said yes to contacts and, and I've, I've been able to con, you know, some people have made connections with me because of that, but I think that's actually a decision that is one of those things that we don't necessarily prepare people really well to think about. Do I want to do this? It was like, I did, I think I told that story about, uh, Clubhouse, right? And I don't have Clubhouse on my phone now. I dabbled with it a little bit and I deleted it. But when I first installed Clubhouse, click, click, click. You know, and I don't, think, I don't know if I had a choice, but it was just so fast and boom, I just granted them access to every single one of my contacts. That's every phone number. That's every email address. And what's been happening lately with Facebook Marketplace is we're selling stuff, right? And it's awesome. I think it's actually better than a garage sale. We're not going to get that much. And we've, we're, we're making a little bit of money, you know, selling furniture that we're not going to be taking to North Carolina. Well, and I've read things on Reddit and other places about how people want to get your phone number. And so you can send them messages through Facebook Messenger. We may have done an article on the show saying that, you know, anyway, some security professional said, iOS users, delete Facebook Messenger. It is not a safe app. And maybe this is part of the reason, um, because rather than message within Facebook Messenger here, send me your, your phone number. Well, no, I'm not sending you your phone number. And the thing that just happened this last week, because I have taken payments with PayPal and, and Venmo, is somebody wanted to use Zelly. Well, I've used Zelly with a relative before, but Zelly works with your phone number. And I was like, no, I'm not giving you my phone number. You know, and, and usually after I do that, these users, whoever they are, just discontinue and they cut off. But anyway, I, I need to write a blog post about this, and I don't know sometimes we get these drums that we're going to beat. We're going to like, we talk password managers and these other things. But for me right now for internet safety is like, do you realize how critical it is to keep your personal cell phone number a secret and not just give it out? And if you're on something like Facebook marketplace, you are interacting with the public and that is a potentially perilous thing. So anyway, I think that just needs to be part of, of overall conversations that we're having with folks about security and safety. And it goes into TikTok or any other app because what do they continue to ask you? Or, you know, it does me, can I have access to your contacts? Will you please let me have access? You know, and especially like I had to d- delete and then reinstall until you get those questions again. Yep, Totally. And hey, quick tip. Um, I don't give my cell phone number out, uh, my, my cell phone, cell phone number out, even though I give my cell phone number out to a lot of people all the time uh, to stay connected. And I do that with a Google voice number. And that's what I do too. Absolutely. Okay, great. All right. Um, well, let's see here. Um, can you, you like to do that cryptocurrency crash? Um, that was you. 
Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. All right. So I'll comment on it because uh, uh, you know my cryptocurrency is. But yes, go ahead. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. This is the New York Times on June 29th, uh, and this is a gift link. If I can figure out how to how to copy it appropriately here, uh, crypto crash widens the divide. Those with money will end up being fine. Um, I will admit that cryptocurrency is one of those things that you know we've talked about on the show. NFTs, non fungible tokens. One of these technologies that like, okay, what does that really mean? Is this a real thing? It's based on blockchain. But, you know, it was only a few weeks ago, um, this video that I had shared that really was a pretty strong expose. And then I think we talked about a Bill Gates article or video that he put out. I mean, I am fully convinced now that crypto is a scam and it is just a, some smart people that have used the technology, which is interesting, um, you know, to create a currency, which, you know, what is currency? It's something that people put faith in, something that people perceive has value. And because enough people perceive it has value, it does. You know, back in the day, what, pre-Nixon, the U.S. dollar used to be backed by real gold. They did away with that. It's just really the perception that we have that, you know, good, what is the full faith and confidence in the U.S. government? You know, it's going to have value. So anyway, this article uh, talk from the New York Times talking about uh, cryptocurrency um, is saying that there's, uh, you know, this big divide and that, that, well, this is funny. So, uh, I don't, Jason, did you see the social network, the movie that was about the founding of Facebook? Mark Several times. Yeah. All right. All right. Excellent movie. If you guys haven't seen that, check that out on Netflix or whatever. So the headline of this features um, billionaire twins uh, who now have a band called Mars Junction, the Winklevosses. Uh, they're featured in that, um, <laughs> in that movie. Well, perhaps not surprising to everybody, they've been really big advocates for cryptocurrency. And, uh, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, they're also, you know, doing this tour, um, you know, raising funds, uh, well, for themselves, uh, as, as band members. Uh, but cryptocurrency is one of these things that's just continuing. People are continuing to say, come on, you got to do it. Literally driving up here to Kansas, stopping at the turnpike at the gas station, the ATM allows you to buy Bitcoin. In fact, I haven't posted this, but these screenshots, you know, buy your Bitcoin, get it right here, trade your, your regular money. And so this article is basically saying the Winklevosses and, you know, Elon Musk and these really high flying folks that are, that are huge into these cryptocurrencies, they're not going to lose their entire shirt. I mean, they've got, you know, millions in, in many cases of dollars wrapped up in this. And so, yeah, there have been 30%, 50% uh, falls in this crypto crash. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be okay. Um, and so that's basically what this article says that the combined fortunes of the 16 richest crypto billionaires exceeded $135 billion in March, Forbes estimated. As of this week, the total was down to about 76 billion. Most of the loss was suffered by a single billionaire, Chang Pao, Chang Ping Zhao, chief executive of Beyonce, whose $65 billion fortune shrank to 17.4 billion. I don't know, man. This is, it's definitely drew, has drawn a lot of folks in. Um, so anyway, your comments, Dr. Neifer, as a crypto investor, <laughs> as, yeah, a Doge, well, as a broad Dogecoin owner. Yes. Uh, and, and to be clear, I'm still, you know, I'm still very much up on Dogecoin because I bought it at such a painfully low price. 
But, I mean, the article makes a really good point about, I mean, I haven't lost anything in, in my crypto investments. And, in fact, because I invested a, a very small amount of money in this, mostly as a joke, um, even if I lose it all, it's not, you know, it's really not going to be a big deal. But that's that's part of the point, right? Like, that's, that's uh, you know, I am not a Winklevi, so I, I really can't comment to... Um, uh, you know, their ultimate worth, but I would imagine what they invested into it was kind of what I invested into it, which, you know, for me was, was a relatively small amount of money. Um, I did at one point, uh, have a unrealized value that was extraordinary based on my relatively small investment. And now it's just, you know, a good return as opposed to a unbelievably shocking return. But I see these poor folks, um, on the message boards on like Reddit and such that have invested really all of their their liquid capital in in cryptocurrency some of them early on did make extraordinary amounts of returns and some of them did really amazing things with it which was to put a down payment down on a house or donate a bunch of money to uh, good causes or help out their mom or do all sorts of, of great things but the vast majority of people that invested a lot of money in those cryptocurrencies um, are seeing losses at this point and uh, sometimes substantial losses and some of the uh, lesser known currencies uh, kind of end up just you know, becoming worth nothing and uh, uh, you know the value disappears with it and so I'm, I, you know, I, I've heard, you know, I've heard cryptocurrency called um, uh, very mockingly, you know, uh, multi-level marketing for bros, uh, which I thought was a pretty funny refer, a pretty funny reference uh, uh, to uh, multi-level marketing schemes. It's probably not that unfair of an analogy, but the bottom line is, is that uh, I still think there is very much a future to cryptocurrencies. I think there's something here. I think there, the blockchain itself, I think has extraordinary applications that we're just beginning to scratch. And I think many of those could actually have some impact ultimately on education and how we do record keeping and how we show uh, a proof of, of what we've done and what we've accomplished, portfolios we've completed. But the bottom line is, is that if you're treating it like a get rich quick scheme, you know, chances are it's 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 going to be uh, uh, at, at, at the very least uh, unpleasant uh, results, if not, you know, a total loss. And so it continues to be be very careful. So one more quote from the article, and then I'm going to do a shout out to the our June uh, episode. When we talked about this video. Uh, this is from the article. And this is also good from a historical standpoint. Crypto and NFTs are an example of something that really should be in your economics curriculum. And if you don't have an economics class, like where do you talk about economics in high school? Like there should be a place where that is discussed. Uh, and and uh, because, you know, we don't do enough with financial literacy with students in general, but the world of crypto is a it's part of the landscape. Um, so the article says the crypto crash started in May of 2022 when an experimental coin called Terra USD lost almost all its value practically overnight, taking down a sister digital currency, Luna, as well. Its collapse devastated some retail traders who had spent their life savings on Terra USD through Anchor Protocol, a lending program that led investors deposit the coin and receive interest as high as 19.5%. And it goes into uh, talking about um, the the sort of like the dominoes that, that fell there. Uh, but let me do a shout out to our previous episode, 260, from June the 1st, 
Um, and in that episode, I shared as my Geek of the Week a video that I really, really recommend called Line Goes Up, The Problem with NFTs. And it's by a guy named Dan Olson. And I also gave the link to an Ezra Klein podcast interview with Dan that he did. So anyway, it's uh, it's well worth checking out. And it's, you know, the blockchain, that kind of technology, encryption. Uh, these are powerful technologies, which we are definitely hearing people tout the, the world-changing potential of them. You know, they are having an impact on, on people's lives. And it is pretty interesting to think about, you know, monetary systems that are outside the central control of, of any kind of bank or, or government or, or things like that. So anyway. That's a bit of a rabbit hole in and of itself. And I think Dr. Neifer, holy cow, are you serious? You got like five minutes. We start a little late, so we can go a few more minutes. What yeah. else do you want to talk about tonight besides um, Well, let's do some uh, uh, Apple articles. Um, and part of this is that I imagine we both might have some stories to tell in regards to this. Um, 9 to 5 Mac uh, uh, reported uh, yesterday a story from Hannah Rose May of the uh, Netflix series Altered, Altered Carbon recently shared a story where an Apple AirTag um, uh, somehow made it on her person. There's a lack of details about the specifics here, but she noticed it uh, when an app uh, pushed uh, pushed on here. She was, I believe, she was at Disney uh, World um, uh, at, at some kind of event, and uh, somehow this tag made it on uh, onto her person or in her stuff. That part is a little unclear. And then um, uh, Apple, uh, uh, the iPhone notified her, and she was able to get rid of it before she left the property, so it didn't follow her anywhere. Um, and I think that, I mean, in my mind, that's a, a, a success from the standpoint of, you know, Apple let her know that there was a rogue tag that was following her. But Apple's still trying to figure out, um, you know, the security lines here. And we've talked about this issue probably a half dozen times since AirTags have, have, have been released widely to consumers. And I think there is some scary things here. But, you know, the other thing that I think is also um, important to remember is that there are a lot of fairly terrifying technologies that are available for next to nothing um, uh, through mainstream consumer sites like Amazon uh, that uh, in a not uh, in, in a not discoverable way uh, can track people's locations. And so uh, it's just something to be ultra aware about. Um, uh, so go ahead, Dr. Farrell. I'll try to share it fast, but I have a, an AirTag story. So thanks to Dr. Neifer, um, I have put I had put an AirTag in my luggage. I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania last week at a robotics uh, workshop for Carnegie Mellon or with Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and it was just great. But holy cow, air travel can be crazy. And it was coming back. And I was on a flight to go into LaGuardia in New York, but the airport was shut down and we all had to leave. And basically the bottom line was I, I thanks to American was able to jump on a flight to Dallas, get another flight, came home early, made it home. No problem. My bag is in New York. So thanks to the air tag, I could see exactly what gate it was at at LaGuardia. Uh, I was able to check in with it. Oh, look, it's made it to Dallas. Oh, look, it made it to Oklahoma City. Oh, look, it's out for delivery. You know, and it was east of I-35 and then it was over here. But, you know, I didn't have that notification from American, but I knew exactly where my bag was. That is very cool. So, and then when I was, you know, even when I went in to file for it, I just went in right after I landed in Oklahoma City and said, hey, my, my bag is in, in New York. I know that because I have an air tag. She's like, really? You're the second person who's come in and said that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah. there's bad stuff, but there's also good stuff. Well, and as a matter of fact, Dr. Fryer, the other article I have to share today um, uh, is from CNET, uh, five places to put an Apple AirTag that you've never thought about. 
Of course, one of them is your your checked bag. And of course, you have thought about this because you listen to the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We've talked about this in the past. But I will tell you that um, I uh, am in love with the AirTech technology. I now have seven of them. Um, I've given them away as gifts to a uh, half dozen people or so. And it's exactly the stuff that you're talking about. There's one in my check bag. Uh, there's one in my daily carry bag. There's one in my insulin kit. I'm a, a, a diabetic. Uh, there's one in my insulin kit. Uh, there's one um, in, um, uh, well, they suggest putting it in your jacket. So you remember to, you know, if you leave your jacket behind, it will notify you that you've left. Yeah, because like, it notifies I, you if you turn that on to when right. you are separated from it. So. Um, these are my AirPods. I bought a case that has an AirTag uh, a holder on there. Um, I also have one um, on my keys uh, that I also. Well, you're uh, going to see him as Jason the Knife AirTag. You know, yes. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Air Knife, I think, is Air what knife. I, the, the preferred uh, <laughs> title that the committee has come up. The, you know, the idea here is that, you know, I, I think that it's an extremely useful technology. And I also have one sitting on my remote at home, uh, too, because uh, uh, if you have a modern iPhone, um, uh, I shouldn't say modern, if you have a recent uh, release iPhone, uh, you can actually have it guide you um, directly to the item. And so uh, if you are an Apple TV user, as I am, and I believe Dr. Fryer is well, <laughs> Uh, the remote is 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 pretty thin, and actually, it it likes to slip in the couch uh, 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 cushion cracks um, in in ways that that is 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 pretty unique in comparison to other um, other remotes. And so I have a a, a holder that also has an air tag, so I can find that piece. So, exhibit A, I've just removed this from Moose, who is journeying with yeah. me. This is Moose's collar, and so we just have a little, uh, uh, you know. I don't know, vinyl, neoprene, whatever. It's just some, some kind of uh, synthetic plastic, uh, but it's in there. He's actually gone swimming multiple times with this, and it's not supposed to be waterproof, uh, but these are doing really well after multiple multiple dunks in the pool. I put one of mine on my Kindle, which I somehow seem to always replace or always misplace in the in the home. So I'm gonna just going to say kudos to Apple for responding to the criticism, for allowing folks now to be able to be alerted when there is an air tag you know, repeatedly in their proximity that's not their own. Um, and so, anyway, it's, it's a very powerful technology. And as we've said repeatedly in different contexts, any powerful technology and tool is going to be able to be used in very, very good and very bad ways. That's just the nature of a really potent new, new technology and development like that. Yep, totally. I couldn't agree more. So that technology continues to be pretty great. Um, and then the last article I'll, I'll, I'll share today um, is uh, uh, related to Apple is another 9 to 5 Mac article. But um, the European Union Parliament um, has passed something referred to as the Digital Markets App. And basically, uh, it is it, it essentially compels companies um, to add in um, uh, or allow alternative uh, app stores um uh, uh, onto devices. And the antitrust legislation will, this is quoting from the article, will also oblige Apple to allow developers to use third-party pl uh, payment platforms when apps are sold through Apple's own app store and could require, <laughs> uh, require it and make iMessage uh, talk to competing uh, uh, messenger apps. And um, uh, the, there is a lot of debate about this, about exactly technically what it will require, um, but uh, uh, it, it, certainly third-party payment platforms is going to be a part of this. 
Uh, it could allow uh, a competing app stores and or sideloading of apps. Um, I will say that uh, 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 it, it isn't necessarily a, a done deal. They would have to allow alternative app stores because uh, it depends on how you define the, the, the narrow parameters of the law. And then, of course, uh, iMessage interoperability uh, so that um, other messaging systems like uh, RCS uh, might be able to talk to um, iMessage. Um, I would say we've talked about this issue a couple of, of times before, maybe even uh, a, a dozen or so times before. I still think that there is some logic to keeping a single vetted app store available on an application. You may force a company like Apple to allow alternative payment systems. I think that's a slightly different story, but there's something to be said about a vetted app store platform. And while you hear all the time that uh, uh, bad apps made onto the Android platform, either through the Google Play Store itself or an alternative app store, of which there are dozens of them available, not the least of which is Amazon's alternative app store, for Android, um, you don't hear about that very often um, on on the Apple side. And uh, Apple's made this argument several times that a a walled garden and a security minded approach uh, do make it a safer experience for the end user. Yeah, well, and it'll be well. Ultimately, that we're going to be faced with choices with this. I guess I can go ahead and say this. I think I've said it out loud before. You know, we're being transcribed by Facebook right now. Once upon a time, Wes jailbroke his iPhone. Uh, and in part, that was because I wanted to be able to mirror my phone and do demonstrations. And you didn't have um, a way to do airplay mirroring. You had to jailbreak your phone and have an app that was available on Cedia, which was the alternative app store. And, and you open yourself up. You had to be very careful. I didn't install stuff I didn't you know, research and, and know about. I think this is the trajectory where we're headed, and that is just going to be a user beware sort of environment where the, the the app environment on the iPhone may not be nearly as gate kept and protected, and people are going to need to be careful. But guess what? Not everybody's going to be, and there's probably kids and others out there that are going to to do things, and may, maybe that'll be something Apple will allow for as a parental restriction, right? Maybe you'll be able to say, okay, kids, only, you know, Apps installed from the App Store. I don't know, but it, it does seem like the trajectory of this, in terms of litigation, is to is to push Apple and and uh, the other you know the other App Stores, Google, but other players that uh, are are there to to open it up. So I, I think it's going to mean. Yeah, my dad's like, it's time. Uh, our studio audience is responding right now, Jason. Um, so I, I think I think that the the trajectory of this is going to be that probably Apple is going to have to open that up and that's going to make things more dangerous for, for consumers and for everybody. And, and bad actors rejoice because you're going to have more chances to get on people's devices. We can't yep. end on that sad note, but you know, we'll say a couple other things before we sign off. Okay. <laughs> well, Wes, I let's, it sounds like we're about time to wrap it up. Uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So I've put two geeks of the weekend uh, today uh, first one is, uh, kind of fun. It's image <laughs> candy. I think it was you, Dr. Neifer, that uh, alerted me to PDF candy. 
And uh, because of sharing that and tweeting that, the developers of Image Candy, which is a website that offers web-based uh, image conversion and manipulation. So converting images, resizing them, compressing them, removing the background, converting them to PDF, rotating them, flipping them, cropping them, adding text, watermarking, making a meme, uh, the all-important HEIC to JPEG, uh, and then making a GIF from a video. All of that is available. So super, super cool, all web-based. Chromebook users rejoice. And then the last thing, um, I have a uh, physical security key that allows me to log into USB-C devices as well as USB, um, well, no, Lightning devices, iOS devices, uh, which is great. I love it. It is on my keychain, which I actually have in my pocket, along with my handy-dandy AirTag. Um, and it's great. Okay. So I can, I can use this as a physical device. It's a YubiKey with, with two sides. Guess what's not there? USB-A. I'm using my ancient Chromebook. <laughs> so, uh, how, how am I going to get this to work? Well, you can have alternative means of authenticating yourself, but there's also an adapter. So that's what I also dropped in is just from Amazon, a $9 USB-C to A adapter which apparently will work with security keys and other things. And so if you've got, for instance, a, well, anyway, that, that's the scenario that I'm using that for, but didn't know that existed. There's my geek of the week. How about you, Dr. Mike? Well, um, I'm traveling again, um, uh, not only uh, in-state travel, but a little bit of out-of-state travel. And in fact, I'm going to be booking a couple more trips uh, for later this fall. I'm trying really hard to stay super safe with COVID, but uh, N95 masks have been my friend. But I mentioned that earlier this year, I picked up an iPad Air 5. Um, this is my iPad Air 5. It's the newest iPad Air. I wish it was available in that sage green color, but the blue color is still uh, absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I love this. It's got the M1 chip in it. It's fast. It's efficient. The battery life isn't super great, but what I've also figured out is that if you keep it, if you keep the uh, 5G on and the screen on super bright, it really burns the battery down. You turn the screen down, you turn 5G, or I'm sorry, you turn a mobile internet off, the battery life gets a lot better. But on a Lark um, a couple weeks back, um, I wanted a keyboard case for this, and um, Apple's keyboard case is 300 bucks for this, the Magic case. But I did find a used version of it on uh, eBay for just under half the price. And to be honest, it came in good enough condition that uh, it probably looks like what it would have looked like if I had uh, taken it on a trip anyways. But I picked it up. Uh, this is it right here. Um, it, and I am absolutely in love with it. It is a, a totally amazing experience because uh, not only does it have a, you know, a nice Apple keyboard, but a beautiful trackpad. And it literally um, is a magnet that holds this into it. And all you do is snap the iPad into place, and then it becomes effectively a mobile laptop. Now, let me be clear. We've talked about in the past, I don't think it's a laptop replacement, right? Like here I am uh, sitting in a hotel room tonight, and I'm on a, uh, my, my, my uh, MacBook Pro, um, and I, I prefer that for, for, for typing. But at a conference, I was at a couple weeks ago in Denver. This was the best portable machine ever. It came in and out of my bag super easily. Um, it, it's lightweight. The battery lasts all day. It's got. It, it has a, a mobile connection on it. So through my uh, uh, through the card I slipped into there, it's easy access without having to mess with conference Wi-Fi. It is a really, really amazing experience. And while um, Two or three years ago, uh, uh, I couldn't have imagined uh, taking only an iPad on a work trip. 
I think I could pull it off now. Um, and uh, again, it's it's an expensive item. Three hundred dollars is the retail price from Apple, but if you spend some time looking for a used one, um, they are anywhere from a third to a half off. And if you find a, a you know a trusty seller, especially one that will take a return from you if it doesn't work out the way you hoped it would, or if it's a, a little too banged up, um, I highly recommend the Magic Keyboard. Um, for iPad. It's the iPad Pro and the iPad uh, Air 4 and 5. Awesome. Well, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here on Wednesday nights, which, by the way, will only be a couple more weeks at this uh, 9 p.m. Central, uh, 8 p.m. Mountain time, we're going to be rolling earlier by one hour starting in August. Uh, where can people find you? Well, best place to find me is is Twitter. Uh, Tech Savvy Teach is my username there. How about you, sir? I am W Fryer on Twitter, and you can also find a variety of links to connect with me at westfriar.com slash after. But this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are appreciative of you joining us. We had our live studio audience here, as well as Peggy. My wife, I don't know if you noticed that Jason even made an appearance in our chat room uh, complimenting me on my Randolph Macon t-shirt. So I think that is a first as well. Uh, but we are normally here on Wednesday nights, and you can check out all the links to our show at edtechsr.com slash links. When I finally get around to doing the compression and publishing, usually that's on a weekly basis, you can access small MP3 versions and smaller compressed audio versions of our show on edtechsr.com. But thankfully, YouTube and Facebook do not delay in archiving our shows, so you can check out any of those on YouTube as well as Facebook, and we encourage you to follow us there as well as on Twitter. Let us know if you've got any feedback from the show. We do love to, to hear when folks are listening, and if you can join us live we would love for you to do that. So until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy, stay safe, and take care. Keep enjoying the summer. If it's summertime. Yeah. Good night. If you're not <laughs>